This is the Stronger Medicine Podcast and you are listening to episode number eight. My name is Julian Donovan and I am a medical doctor working in the NHS in the UK, currently in my second year of foundation training, working in emergency medicine at the moment. Now, my hope for the Stronger Medicine project is that I may be able to, in some small way, encourage and support the idea that although obviously medicine is vital and it's life-saving and we need it, that actually for arguably a larger part of our health and our lives, that we are able to do more than we may appreciate and that actually a lot of our health and well-being really does rely on us as individuals and that really the message is a very positive and a very hopeful one that there is a lot that we can do. So today I've been speaking with Nick Parker on Christmas Eve of 2015. Nick was found to have inoperable cancer on a scan. Shortly thereafter in January, he was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer, being offered palliative treatment rather than curative treatment. Since this time, Nick has taken an extremely proactive approach to his cancer and the way he's been managing it. He's been exploring and continues to explore many different methods and modalities spanning across Chinese medicine, complementary therapies, exploring diet, different types of movement and exercise practices, meditation, stress management strategies, retreats, and all sorts of other things. So in our conversation today, Nick and I did speak about all of these different things that he's been doing, but crucially, we also got onto the topic which can be a difficult one to address in our current society, and that is of our mortality and and death. These sorts of topics and conversations can be really difficult, and I'm extremely grateful to Nick for his open and candid conversation with me around these and giving us a bit of an insight into how his view on on this particular subject has evolved over time. Now, if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, just send me an email over at julian at strongermedicine.com. But for now, I bring you Nick Parker. So, Nick, thank you very much for joining today. Really appreciate you taking the time to come onto the show to talk about your experiences and and everything that you've been doing um, since 2015. First of all, I suppose central to this sort of conversation and me reaching out to you is the fact that, and we'll get into hopefully your, your diagnosis a bit more if that's okay and the story there. But when you were diagnosed, you you clearly rejected a sort of fatalist approach to that which I think is an inherent danger of having such a diagnosis and you've taken a very explicitly proactive approach to to managing this so you haven't merely relied on waiting for medical intervention and just passively receiving NHS appointments and things of that nature but you've actually gone completely to the other end of the spectrum and 
clearly experimented with a lot of different things. I suppose starting from the beginning, could you tell us about the diagnosis itself in, I believe it was 2015 on Christmas Eve? Uh, so if I rewind a little bit before Christmas Eve, so in September 2015, I remember waking up one morning and feeling like I'd run a marathon through the night, which clearly I hadn't. I kind of just had lots of really deep pain in my tops of my legs. And I put it down to being an old bloke, uh, a 51-year-old guy who's playing squashes, an old bloke, um, and didn't think too much of it. And I guess a couple of weeks passed and I got really chronic pain in my rib cage, under my rib cage for about six hours as I was lying in bed and I couldn't shift it. And a couple of weeks later, that pain went across the top of my shoulders. And then I started to get really confused feeling in my stomach, something between sort of nausea and hunger. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then sort of constipation, switching between constipation and diarrhea was a little bit, bit confused. Um, so I went to the doctor, had my 10 minutes, uh, was prescribed three pills. Um, one for my bone pain, one for my nausea, one for my constipation. Uh, told to come back if nothing had changed. And nothing had changed two weeks later. Indeed, things got worse. Uh, so I had some blood tests. I had some liver markers that were all over the place. And... I was sent to a specialist urologist. They said, mm, yeah, Nick, you are just an old bloke. You've got a viral infection and, you know, you'll, you'll shake it off. Um, so then, uh, you know, these, these are kind of, I suppose, increments of two plus weeks, something like that. I don't know. Um, and no change. Uh, I went back to the doctors by this time. I mean, my pee had been starting. I mean, my pee on reflection was was getting weird. It was getting weaker and sort of I couldn't clear my bladder and things like that. But, you know, now I started to notice it. Um, my bone pain was getting more intense. I was getting mental fog. Um, I The nausea was just becoming more, more and more frequent. And I... Uh, and the constipation and diarrhea wasn't going away. So it was just kind of all these things were, were gaining in frequency. I uh, had some more blood tests and eventually, so I think this is kind of getting on to be late November now, 2015. So the doctor said, we don't know what's going on, so we'll put you down for a scan. And... So I was waiting for the letter about my scan. Was that a CT scan that they were arranging just a full body? Yeah, mm. yeah, that was CT scan, yeah. And um, they uh, put me down for a scan and the letter didn't come through, so I got rather concerned. We kind of had some contacts in the hospital at the other end. We said, is Nick Parker on the list? And they said, who's Nick Parker? Somehow I hadn't got any lit on any list. Uh, eventually went back to the doctor. Doctor said, you are on the list. So I went back to the hospital and found that I was on the list for January. We weren't happy about January. My wife is, um, 
a lot more forceful than I am. I think I'm like many, many men who stick their heads in the sand about these things. At least I was at that time. I think I'm different now. Um, and uh, she said, no, it's not acceptable in January. You know, we need to have one now. So I had a scan just before Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, I was uh, given a call by my GP to say, please come in and discuss your scan results there. They're too complicated to, um, perhaps the word wasn't complicated, or we don't discuss these things over the phone or something. But anyway, um, so I went in to go and see my GP on Christmas Eve uh, to go and hear my scan results. And she said, um, it's the worst you could fear. And I suppose I wasn't fearing anything because there wasn't anything that I was Nothing had been expecting. alluded to in this Nothing period. had been alluded to. Wow. No. Goodness I me. think my wife was um, secretly um, more fearful than me. She'd been look, looking at Dr. Google and had run down this list of um, uh, certain cancers and she'd found um, kind of by the end of uh, the fact that I ticked about 9 out of 10, she was more fearful than I was. Anyway, um, it, I, it hadn't clocked with me and she told us the news and... Um, she said, look, you've got um, cancer in your, the scan says you've got cancer in your bones, but it's unlikely to be uh, a primary cancer. It's usually secondary. And we will look for prostate at this point. And uh, so I had a blood test at that point. And, um, then I went away. Was that the PSA that they did at that stage? That's right. Which is yeah. the tumour marker um, That's right. for prostate. Yeah, exactly. So this is Christmas Eve, and so um, I've been given the sort of uh, news that I had some sort of cancer. And so um, I went back home, and I read everything all through the night. Um, didn't get to sleep. Uh, and Christmas Day dawned, and I was a vegan by Christmas Day. Although I gave myself one day grace because um, I want. I told I told the adults in my family, but I didn't tell tell the children. And um, so I gave myself one last sort of bender, and um, and I read and I found so many people had no, no, not so many people. A lot of people had kind of defied prognosis and statistics enough people had and um so um i told the kids on uh on boxing day which is obviously a rather upsetting experience for all of us i then went to have a, a digital rectal examination they said yes you've kind of got a knobbly strange sized prostate uh i then had a biopsy that felt like a tractor was driven up my backside um and uh there's no prizes for getting 10 out of 10 on a any scores but i got nine out of 10 on my gleason score which basically meant it was a um a uh a oh sorry i i, I obviously i had the psa results at that point as well prior to that point which was um 625 um when the 
number that is deemed to be an acceptably upper limit, acceptable upper limit is four. Yeah. So, so I got 625, which is a 150 times normal. And um, then I went into for the digital rectal examination, and then I went for the biopsy, and and so the Gleason score of nine out of ten, which basically said it was a metastasized, highly aggressive, advanced prostate cancer, and because it was metastasized in too many places all over my skeleton, is that uh, surgery wasn't appropriate because it had escaped the prostate, and radiotherapy wasn't appropriate because uh, the dosage that would be required would knock me over. So I'd have to have the gold standard in systemic palliative care. Right. And what was the delay from your initial appointment with the GP for these bizarre symptoms of pain in in the legs and the, the shoulders and things to you actually getting a prognosis with the Gleason score, the PSA, digital rectal exam, everything together, and the scan? So that would have been September, October, November, December, right. part, of, part of January. Well, mm. okay. And prior to, did you notice anything else um, before that morning when you woke up with the, the pain in the thighs? Did you have any, for example, weight loss or nausea before then, or was it sort of, from that morning, you started to notice things. Um, it was from that. It was I, I hadn't noticed anything prior prior to that morning. I mean, if I think about it, probably maybe there were just some minor bone aches or or, or muscle aches that I put them down to muscle aches because I was playing a lot of squash at that time, and um, so I just put it down to being a bit bit old and. Um, there is a backstory, however, um, and the backstory is that in 2005, I just got fed up with getting a lot of headaches and blurred vision, and it had just come. It had just accumulated to a point that I just needed to go and see someone about it. And so I went to the GP and they took my blood pressure and they said, Nick, this, uh, this, I think our blood pressure machine must be broken. Uh, I will try another one. Gosh, this one's saying the same one as the last one and perhaps they're both broken. I'll try this third one. And by the time they tried the third one, they, all three blood pressure machines had said the same thing, which I had a blood pressure of 220 over 180. They said, um, well, you've got mad blood pressure. Yeah, so for the listeners, a normal, well, anything above 140 is high blood pressure, hypertensive, so 210. Mm. If you had any symptoms like headaches, you would potentially be admitted there and then for dangerously high blood pressure. That, so that is really high, yeah. And that was in 2005. And um, so I then went to a specialist for hypertension in young people. And I went through 10 months of testing and 10 months of no red wine or alcohol. That was very challenging. And at the end of 10 months of testing, they said, can't find anything. 
And um, so they said to you, you're going to be on blood pressure medication for life. I thought, what for life? I thought that's for old people. You know, I thought maybe I'd have blood pressure medication until it corrected itself or until the pills made it better or something. But so my view is that if I'd listened to my body, if I knew then what I know now, that was something that was telling me that I was in a state of dis-ease and that was an early warning, my body telling me to do something and I didn't and I ignored it and I papered over it with some pharmaceuticals. Okay, so sort of stretching back then before the 2015, that's you think that's... Yeah. That was a warning I'm, I'm sign. Convinced, convinced, convinced. Okay, it, yeah. And I, I've seen you mention elsewhere that you're and you you separate dis and ease from the word disease, which is yeah. quite a clever thing because you've mentioned that that dis ease, including uh, I suppose the the high blood pressure, and I don't know how much you you attribute the the prostate cancer to this as well. But you've mentioned that that disease is due to anxiety and stress becoming chronic over a period of time. Is that still sort of your view for the genesis of everything that's been going on? How how does it sort of fit in with with your diagnosis? Well, of course, you know, um, I can I I say of course, but what I like to do is I, I like to hypothesize. I'm a kind of engineering scientist type person. And I like to set an hypothesis and I like to go out and try and disprove my hypothesis. And so to answer your question a long way around, if I uh, asked, I did ask the medics why I, why I have this disease. And they said, you're just unlucky. You're just born with duff genes. And I decided that actually I didn't want to hear that because that just removed my hope. And what I did was um, say that, say to myself that actually, I think it's probably of my own making, and that um, everything I'd read had put myself into a position where my body was in a state of dis ease with itself and in with the life that I was leading. And that actually, if I look back on my life and the way I am, I, I am naturally quite a anxious and stressful person. And that is my, that was my hypothesis is that my stress and my anxiety, um, created a state of disease. And then I found all sorts of things like, I mean, there's, there's so many different sort of bits of science out there and bits of evidence, but, you know, I, I will take some bits that kind of ring true with me. And that's something like 90 to 95% of cancers can be attributed to lifestyle or environmental factors. Mm, I've seen of that course, paper. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there are things like epigenetics as well and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, epigenetics can even be switched on and off by, um, you know, even if you do have duff genes can be switched on and off by your, by your, uh, lifestyle and, epi- uh, um, environmental factors. So, so you're in control of so much more than you think. So, you know, I, I felt that, uh, my naturally stressful and anxious way of life had created, 
my state of disease. And then if I read into, well, then I had things like um, cortisol testing, uh, uh, swabbing in my mouth, and I discovered that my cortisol uh, was elevated throughout the day because I was in a state of high anxiety. That's the way I ran my day. So I then discovered that um, I had high cortisol through all of my day. I then discovered that, you know, if you have high levels of, of fight and flight um, hormones in your body, then that <clears throat> creates havoc with um, insulin and uh, glucose management systems and all your hormone balances. It just mucks up uh, your gut digestion. It just it just, I liken it to putting your foot on the brake on the accelerator at the same time. And at some point, you know, some part of the end of the car in that analogy, um, metaphor is going to blow up. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're just overstressing everything, something's going to give up. And, you know, it, I, I think it gives up at its weakest point. And, you know, my press, perhaps my prostate is my weakest point, but, so this whole thing of being uh, leading a highly stressful and anxious existence, on top of the fact that um, my lifestyle factors weren't good, and they all, you know, I think that in, uh, unfortunately in the Western world we put everything into a bucket and we set into single buckets and we kind of say, you know, this is exercise or this is nutrition or this is mindfulness or this is whatever, and we treat it very very differently. But they all interrelate and. Um, so I was leading a very sedentary lifestyle as well. Um, so I wasn't taking exercise and exercise is course. If you do take exercise, it's all um, great for stress management and anxiety management. Um, I was eating very poor, uh, Western diet as well. Um, and you know, I just didn't have time for proper nutrition. And if you don't have time for proper nutrition, then of course you're not getting good stuff into your gut. You're not absorbing good stuff, which doesn't make your organs and other aspects of your biology work properly so you know it was all compounded but ultimately i think it was because i just had a very stressful existence mm. so a couple of things that's just come to mind as you've been saying all that first thing yeah i mean the trying to tease apart the causative factors of cancer and whether it's predominantly genetic or lifestyle has it seems like even conservative estimates say that about 30% of cancers are preventable and environmentally driven. The higher end would be around the 1995, but even conservatively, 30%. And as you've already alluded to, yeah, smoking, obesity, alcohol, diet, there's, there's loads of different things. And perhaps only up to 10% are inherited. So that, that kind of stuff is is blowing my mind as more and more research about this comes out. So I think what you're saying has a huge amount of mileage. And then the other thing um, which struck me that you were mentioning, and I hadn't considered this actually when I've seen your other articles and things of your experience with the diagnosis, your um, reluctance to accept what the medics were saying at the time that this is purely bad luck and you've, you, you know, you've got bad genes or whatever the, the phrase would be, being more based on that taking away some sort of hope because I can imagine a lot of people would I mean when it comes down to cancer and there's still so much it's still such a, a sort of terrifying disease for many many people to talk about if there's any uh, alluding to somebody being even partially responsible for 
for cancer. I can imagine it would be a very difficult thing, a very difficult conversation to have um, in the clinic. And I think your 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 interpretation of it saying that actually, no, I will take some sort of responsibility for this is quite interesting. I, could, I don't know how I would react to that. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Uh, I don't know if I would rather say, actually, I, I, I don't feel like I've I've got any responsibility for this. So that's quite interesting that you that you took it in that in that way. Yeah, and I think I'm, you know, I'm I, I'm very humbled by other people's stories, um, and there are a lot of stories which are worse than mine. I think I've been gifted by a lot of things. I think I've been gifted with a mind that is curious. Uh, and a mind that allows me to see my cancer as a gift. And um, it's been, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's been brutal, continues to be brutal. Um, I think my, my family and my wife in particular probably travel a journey which could be more difficult than mine. At least I'm in control of what I do, you know. And I have ultimate belief in what I'm doing. Um, but yes, I think that um, if you have hope, you have belief. And if you have belief, you have possibility. And, and I think I just, I just, I don't know. I'm just, I just, I'm just, I was equipped to the mind that, it's probably the two sides of the same coin is that my mind being eternally curious is therefore full of rubbish. And and that's part of the reason why I'm anxious and stressed the whole time. But if I can learn to manage some parts of that, then hopefully I can get to a better place. So I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a dichotomy, but I think it's, it's a very interesting one that I, I, I enjoy sort of uh, my journeys in various different parts of managing my health. I enjoy sort of trying to tease them apart. But yeah, the, the whole thing about hope is really, really important. And I think it's it's really important to get hope. It's, sorry, it's very difficult to get hope out of the doctor's surgery. And I really, really understand it. And I really, really understand the difficult nature of um, what doctors have to do for us, uh, particularly if you're in a pretty grim situation. Um, because just I can understand blind hope. And, you know, if... It, Hope is an action. You know, someone said to me once, hope is an action. And it is. It's an action. It's not just hoping and sitting and doing nothing. Mm. Hope is an action. Yeah. Uh, your Gleason score in particular, the, as you've said, the maximum score is 10. I believe yours was 9. Mm. And for anyone who who's not aware of what the Gleason score is, it's essentially two, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but two core biopsies of the prostate, one um, of the most um, sort of affected area by the cancer and another of a different area and seeing what the cells are like and how dysplastic they are and you get a score from that but with that kind of score when the news was being broken to you and through the journey with the oncologists I guess it is a problem in medicine that with large populations you need some sort of um, quantifiable metrics to contextualize things but at the same time if you're given a 9 out of 10 Gleason 
how do they how do they frame that and did they did they, did they give you any of this sense of hope or these these aspects of sort of belief that you yourself have cultivated through your own journey no okay that's really interesting yeah was it very just matter of fact this is your score the approach will be palliative yeah okay yeah um and it wasn't until you know i found some other people who had beaten and I, i'm not i'm not particularly interested in statistics you know i'm not a statistic and uh, even if they said to you, you know you've got a five percent chance of getting to six months if you don't take this gold standard you know i'm just not interested in that because actually that might be a population statistic but on an individual level why can't i work bloody hard and be one of those five people in a hundred who gets the golden ticket out of town you know why can't i so so it works at a global level but not at an individual level and then i went to go and see a lot of complimentary people and the great thing about complimentary people and I, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I, the NHS and, uh, the, the conventional medical system, I think is just fantastic, but it can't be all things to all people. And, um, so if I go, I did go and see a lot of complementary therapists. And of course, one of the things that they have particularly, well, they, you tend to have to pay for it. And therefore the sort of relationship is very different. And so you are paying for say an hour. And um, they have time to discuss the whole being and they have time to be much more compassionate and understanding in, in the words that they use. And so it's a completely different dialogue. And, and, I, and I gained enormous, enormous strength from that, particularly from one particular man who's called Michael McIntyre, who is not a comedian. He is a an amazing Chinese medical um, herbalist and uh, and uh, and the original Michael McIntyre in my view and the sort of well I'm not going to say anymore but he I, I don't think I'd be here if I wasn't for him but you know he, he gave me uh, a lot of uh, permission to do a, a lot of things outside conventional medicine and um, and just the whole thing of just 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 this thing of just fueling hope really um yeah it's very important i think uh, just reflecting on difficult conversations that i've had in the past as well with patients i think you're right we don't really have the the leeway whether it's time or um uh, not necessarily mental headspace and probably more time uh to have those sorts of dialogues with patients and also I think we are partly beholden by these statistics that that are produced by Gleason scores, PSA scores, things like this. And there's, for me, just trying to reflect on it, there would be a sense of not wanting to be disingenuous and wanting to paint, I suppose, uh, what I would think is a realistic picture based on, as you say, statistics. but. 100% I absolutely agree with you and I think most doctors would that 
statistics are population based and they're not individual and i suppose maybe that's something that we need to change in the medical profession to actually say look this is the the statistical outcome of your situation but and caveat it with something that's more contextualized to the individual patient in front of us so that there is some hope and that that sort of brings me on to i think the listeners would be thinking okay actually what what kind of things have you gone off and done um from this and i wondered if you could give a bit of an overview um either in list or whatever format you like as to the kinds of avenues that you've gone down because from my impression the nhs has been a a a very small part of your overall journey into all the other things that you've looked into yeah and it'd be really trite for me to say there's I've looked into everything and there's nothing I haven't looked into, which that would be wrong. Um, I'm just amazed that every time I allow myself to spend some time on research, just the, the list of stuff I can try, it just gets longer and longer. Um, but some of the things that um, I have tried and um, some have failed and some have not, but the things that I've been experimenting with um, is Chinese medical herbs and actually that extends then to herbs in my garden I love I love the whole sort of concept of you know all that stuff is that you know you can start with Chinese but actually the herbs in your garden are amazing um, so I've done a lot of that acupuncture um, I've done a lot of uh, work with a psychotherapist and again you know I, I love I love the um, there's a journey in all of these things as I, as I intimated I might have started with Chinese medical herbs but then moving into herbs in my garden you know that is a journey in herbs and I love the journey in uh, psychotherapy and that I started by spending a lot of money um, crying on a on the couch of a professional psychotherapist and and I still do and it's brilliant and everybody should be doing it but actually it's just a form of talking therapy really and so actually I've done I, I, I now spend a lot of time talking and being really really vulnerable in my talking I think it's really important to be vulnerable I think it's really important to be talking about how you feel and to be emotional about it and so you know, that's a journey in talking. Um, so, uh, I've done a lot of that. Um, I do a lot of exercise and I really love the word. I like playing with words. I think the word exercise is wrong. I think the word exercise, um, makes you think that there's a defined part of a day, say at lunchtime. A bit compartmentalized, yeah. A bit compartmentalized, exactly. Totally agree. And, and actually, that's wrong. I think a better word at the moment is movement. And um, I haven't done it now. And perhaps I should just demonstrate to your listeners. But usually what happens is that I have an, uh, um, a, uh, a bell on my phone, uh, a mindfulness bell on my phone that goes off, goes off every half an hour. And if I'm sitting down for half an hour, it makes me stand up for the next half an hour. 
then I can then it goes off again and I sit down for the next half an hour. So I'm I'm permanently moving. So even if I'm in an in an office environment sitting in a desk or if I'm in a board meeting, you know, this weird guy is just standing up, sitting down the whole time. But it's just it's really, really important to keep moving. And so 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 the thing about exercise, and of course I do do exercise, so I do strength and conditioning because it's really important to keep my muscles working because you know, at some point in your life, your muscles atrophy naturally losing a pound for every year. Um, but you obviously, you need to, you need to load your, your, your bones to keep them strong too. So I do, uh, strength and conditioning weekly, uh, flexibility, uh, and, um, subtlety is really, really important. So I do yoga. Um, and then I, I do some walking because, I want to um, just raise my heartbeat. Uh, I want to enjoy nature. Uh, so I do Nordic walking, which is shown statistically to increase your um, heart rate and metabolism by 40% because you're using your arms and your thoracic muscles to give them a good workout, not just your legs. Um and sometimes when I feel up to it, I go for a run. Um, and so, so, so the, the thing is, I think what I'm trying, and I, I, I go and work in the garden a lot. So I think you do a lot I'm with diet to, as well, don't you? I think you've had a and lot I do of exploration. A lot with diet as well. Yeah. Mm. I, I've done so much with diet. And, um, so diet has been a very, very long journey and, and it continues to be a long journey. I'm not, I'm not at the end of any, any of these things, but especially diet. Diet, I find a very difficult word because diet, again, suggests that there is some sort of restriction or something that, you know, it's either, uh, you know, a small period of time or it's restricted from certain consumption of certain foods. But I think it's, um, you know, it could either be the word uh, nutrition or it could be the word nourishment. I think nourishment could extend beyond what you put in your, in your mouth. But if we're just thinking about what goes into your mouth then perhaps nutrition is the right word, but, um, you're I think cur- currently fast- coming to the end of a, of a fast as well. Um, yes. so timing as well, so, I imagine. Exactly. So I think the whole thing about what you do put in your mouth and what you don't put in your mouth, uh, how you eat is just, in- just incredibly important. So, on the fasting thing, I, I've trialed all sorts of fasting. So I've done the um, restricted time meetings, so the 16, 18, 16 hour, 8, eight hour uh, eat window. I've done um, <clears throat> the 5 2, where you've got five days where you eat normally and two days where you don't, you're on restricted calories. And actually, now where I feel most comfortable about is. Uh, 24 to 36 hours a week, I kind of one day or an extended day every week where I, it's just water only. Um, and then I'm working up to three days, um, end to end water only in a month and then seven days in a quarter. And I'm not sure whether I will get to that point. Um, because I am. Uh, I'm now, my BMI is about 18 and a half. So I don't, uh, you know, my fat percentage fat is about 12. And, um, you know, I don't have much, much residual fat. 
so it's 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 quite difficult for me to last that long but um i feel super energized when i come out of um say two day long fasts and i'm as you say i'm coming out of a 36 hour fast at the moment okay um so to be to just be clear did you accept any treatment that was offered by the medical system you mentioned gold therapy um palliative chemo is that did did you go down that route yeah so um the first thing that i did um conventional was uh a hormone blocker which i'm still which i'm still on which is a three monthly jab in my bum which uh stops my which is a which is my uh, mental instruction to stop my testes producing uh, testosterone, and um, and so that's something that I, I'm. I have. I did go on a hormone holiday. I did decide to take a break from that because not having hormones, male hormones, creates all sorts of problems. I had. I beat my wife to the female menopause, and when I first married her, I didn't think that that would ever happen. Of course. Um, but yes, so that had a lot of side effects that I decided I wanted to, I wanted to have a break from. So I, I've been on that from, um, from near day one and then, um, with this break and I will, I might have another break. We'll see. Um, and then in the March after the diagnosis, I had chemotherapy. I had six rounds of chemotherapy. Um, and yeah, so that was the gold standard, which is kind of theme of chemotherapy alongside a hormone blocker. Okay. All right. So um, that's what you've been getting in, in the conventional sense. And one question I have is with all the other complementary things that you've been exploring, the Chinese medicine, well, the exercise is not so much on the fringe as perhaps Chinese <coughs> medicine, but all the different things that you've been doing, what has been the aim of those? Has it been to try and actually sort of biologically affect the the cancer and the prognosis from that perspective? Or has it been more of a quality of life? Or ha I suppose, what's what have you been hoping to get out of that? And I know that you've taken a lot of measurements. I don't know specifically what, but you mentioned in your website, you've you've measured a lot of different things through this process so i suppose my first question is um what what has been the aim of undertaking all of these different modalities and experiments and then uh, number two have do you believe that they have had an effect sort of physically on the metrics that you've been using um and how if any has it affected those well um so um Around the time of diagnosis, um, I managed to play the system a bit so that I got to a point where I was having about 36 different blood measures. Okay. And, okay. And, um, and of those 36... 11 of them were 11 of them were saying that I was in a not in a very good state so things like you know I, I, I talked about my liver markers before but 
also um, some renal markers uh, and all sorts of other ones. And um, so um, I had learned through my research that nutrition had pl played such an important part of getting back to a healthy state. And I'd been eating just what we all eat in the Western world, which is not a very nutritionally dense diet. And so I think there's something, there's, there's something which is different, but there's a, there's a therapeutic uh, nutritional program and there's a maintenance nutritional program. So I needed to, I felt I needed to supercharge my system just by eating a lot of very, very, uh, nutritionally dense, uh, foods and some supplements, which I haven't talked about, um, and do some Chinese medicine and, and do a lot of things that would help these blood markers. That's sort of front loading that, it, front loading it. Mm. Exactly. And those, those were, those were my primary measures were to see whether I could address all of those, those markers. And including the PSA, was that something you were hoping to address? Well, obviously the PSA, but then, you know, the PSA, I, I was, you know, the, the conventional medicine was addressing the PSA. Okay. And you were getting monitoring um, for that as well. And I was getting monitoring for that. So my PSA, thankfully, fell into line within about, uh, six weeks. And, um, you know, it dropped from 625 to about 0 0.3. And uh, so I had an extreme reaction to that, which was fantastic. Um, but all these other things indicated that my body was in a state of disease. And so I wanted to, as you say, front load all the stuff. So what I was trying to do, um, but also, the, sorry, the other thing I was trying to do is that uh, if you have your testosterone blocked, then as a man is that the side effects of that are that you start to lose muscle because um, uh, testosterone is uh, the male muscle that, as you well know, um, is one of the things. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah it, it helps you um, maintain muscle bulk. So, so things like exercise is really, really important for me to try and work counter to the side effect of some of the, some of the drugs I was taking. So... So all of this stuff was to do to work on my body as a whole to allow me to tolerate a uh, a regimen, um, a drug regimen, uh, and also to correct a state of disease. So like that's an the reason. That's the re an adjunct exactly. So it's really important to to have all of these things working together, and some of them, if you believe it, and I do. Some of them are anti-inflammatory. If you believe there's part of uh, cancer that it's an inflammatory disease, and if you work on your internal inflammation, then you're going to be working internally to help uh, a state of, of disease and cancer. So they all kind of work together, in my humble opinion. And um, one thing that I hadn't talked about in all the things that I've tried, which actually I think is just really important as well as I really worked on my faith and my which actually I think is a difficult word to describe but maybe I'll call it my spirituality um 
but that's a really important part of it as well because that doesn't really come up in sort of conversation, medical conversations. But it's a really, really, really important part of where I'm at at the moment and the journeys that I've been through. It's really important. Right. Because you did a, a Vipassana, a 10-day meditative silent yeah. retreat. How yeah. on earth was that? I know some people that have done it and it's pretty brutal by all accounts and even with the energy levels and things sorry to jump in but even that if you've got if you're on testosterone blocking treatment and you've got muscle wasting and the fatigue and i don't know if it was around the time of chemotherapy but just to have the energy to get through those days yeah sorry how how was it well i'm really um interested and partly delighted that you used the word brutal um because again, you know, I, I, it's another area that I have journeyed in. And so I've done a second one since that first one. And then I moved on to a different type of Buddhist philosophy and, and retreat. And that, that allows me to kind of explore the sort of boundaries. And I have definitely put Vipassana on the brutal end. And for I the think listeners, it's very... sorry, could you just give a quick summary of what, because I don't think many people would know what Vipassana entails. Yeah, so Vipassana is something that everybody should go and do because I think you need to explore boundaries, and I still take a lot out of it. But Vipassana is a 10-day retreat uh, in a Buddhist tradition, and you are essentially silent for nine and a half of those 10 days. So you get the privilege of speaking to your other retreatants in the last half day. But for nine and a half days, you are, well, this is the one that I went on, um, is that you are uh, on a, uh, let's call it a, uh, well, at a venue, campus, um, and you start your day at four o'clock in the morning. You, at half past four, you go into your first meditation. And all through the day, you're essentially sitting cross-legged in a meditation hall, uh, silent, uh, and being very meditative, which is largely through a breathing practice or a, a kind of internal body scanning mental exercise those are the two main meditative practices in vipassana but as you sit there uh, and you're sitting cross-legged on your stool or cushion uh for long periods of time you know for multiple hours um your back and your legs scream at you and you're silent and your eyes are closed and of course, you're, you're having there are some pre-demarcated breaks, but um, this is slightly oversimplifying things. Um, but your your back and your legs are screaming at you, and um, it's it's a practice of how you disassociate your mental pain from your physical pain. And actually, you know, one of the fundamental teachings of uh, Buddhism is that everything is impermanent. So actually, pain is impermanent. I mean, joy is impermanent too. Um, but actually you can get through pain. And it's amazing that in day four, although you're 
body is screaming at you. Some point in day four, you, there's this disassociation, and suddenly the pain, the physical pain, just melts away. It's just, it's the most exhilarating experience. It's weird. I don't know how it happens. It just does. So, um, but it is brutal. It's brutal, and there's what they call sittings of strong determination, where um, you got a ratchet another level, which is you're not allowed to. You can't if a fly lands on your nose or an elephant stood on your head, you cannot flinch, and um, you know you just have to sort of mind muscle it out. Goodness and um, yeah, it, it's tough, but you know it's so. So you yeah. got a lot out of that, then it sounds like. Yeah, mm. I decided that 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 was quite brutal, and then I've I've got the most fantastic yoga teacher, and uh, she was also advised that that's quite brutal for her, and so I've got into a um, a different form of meditation um, and practiced by a wonderful ninety uh, three year old uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk called Thich Nhat Han, and. Um, he set up something, a movement called Plum Village, and it's just amazing. And it's just, I've just come back from a five-day retreat on that. And it, and that's just, um, that's a lot kinder. And I think where Vipassana is very much, uh, and the guy who espouses the Vipassana I went on, which is a guy called S.N. Goenko, unfortunately isn't with us anymore, but you know he, has, he's, he calls it open mind surgery, whereas... Um, this latest one is is definitely the fusion of mind and heart, and I really love that because you know the heart side of it is very important. Okay, was there anything of all the things that you tried that you just would not recommend? Anything which you started doing or gave a go, which was just deleterious or just awful? Because um, you cast your net quite wide, from what I can tell. <sighs> I don't think I would say don't do any of it. I think I think it's really, you know, I don't. I I'm not sitting here preaching to people. Yeah, it's your own experience. Yeah, it's your own experience, and you know, I can't say don't do this. People stand up. I mean, if I do a public talk, people say, "Will you do chemo the second time round?" And um, or you know, I'm or this person might say, "Look, Nick." I'm having to make a decision about whether I do chemo or not. Would you, what would you advise? Oh, that is a really can't answer that question, can you? You can't answer that question, and you know, um, I, I. So therefore, your question is a really good question to ask. But actually, I think that um, when when you're on on the edge, you have to kind of um, you have to have the courage to kind of push forward through fear, because. Um, there aren't any easy answers out there, um, and we're all biologically unique, and we have to go and discover those journeys for ourselves. And actually, there's enormous joy in doing that. There really is enormous joy in doing it. And as I said, you know, I'm gifted with thinking that my cancer is largely a positive experience. And so, um, yeah, I mean, in chemotherapy, I had a severe an anaphylactic shock within one nanosecond of taking this awful stuff. But that was my that was my body telling me, you know, your body is is being poisoned. And you know, I had the most amazing nurses who hit the the kill buttons on the on the on the pumps, and um, then just filled me with gas and air and um, steroids and stuff, and 
you know, and, 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 you know, it was difficult for me to then go through the rest of the course of, of treatment. But, you know, once I got my head around it and I did, and do I regret doing it? Well, you know, I can argue in some ways that I don't think that chemotherapies work that way for slow growing, uh, hormone driven prostate cancers. And there's some evidence to say that. Um, but you know, who's to know? Um, so I just think everybody has to travel their own journey and I'm not in a position, not just because I'm not medically trained, but just because I think everybody needs to, um, you need to travel your own journeys. Yeah. Unfortunately, it comes back to your first, well, near the beginning of the conversation where you mentioned about statistics versus the individual and Mm. that's sort of that holds true for what you're saying there i suppose um so another thing which i've seen you mention is about the aggregation of marginal gains and aside from the the specific kind of supplements and the nitty-gritty of these like herbs and that sort of thing from a more meta perspective what sort of um principles or concepts do you think for example the marginal gains you have learned and have been helpful to you um, through these last five years, four years, sorry? Well, um, I think number one is to hypothesize as to why you're in a state of disease. I, I, that's, you know, that's really important for me is to hypothesize why I'm in a state of disease. And then... Um, and then just to start somewhere and you know what resonated with me having read a load of stuff through the night i just diet resonated with me and that that was the first thing that i just got onto and then um this aggregation of marginal gains gains actually i find just deeply fascinating which is essentially saying to me don't strive to find this single silver bullet which is going to make a hundred percent difference find a hundred things where you can make a one percent difference and that was a you know that was a complete light bulb moment for me and it's the reason it's why sir clive woodward and uh, adam pt and sir david brailsford they all they all talk about the aggregation of marginal gains and they're the people who admittedly in the sporting world have reached the top of um, the world in their chosen sports but they all talk about the aggregation of marginal gains and I think it's got it's got such an amazing for me ring of truth to it so I really I avidly follow that so I'm doing a lot of things in a lot of areas but also making a one percent improvement in every day so it's about constant progression um so that's really important as a, as a, what I would call a strategy. I used to think that, um, this whole thing was very much a mind game. I used to think it was more of a mind game, uh, than anything else. I think it is a mind game because, you know, things start with your mind and then it goes on to what you talk, what you then say and then what you act. But I think that's the point is quite often, particularly in the Western world, I think we've got stuck in a sort of cerebral world where we over-intellectualize things. And actually, if you listen to some of the 
um, Buddhist philosophies, they talk about wisdom being three parts. One is to listen to your master. The second thing is to understand what your master says, which is very listen, different to listen. You know, understanding is a much, much more involved process. And the third bit, which we forget mostly um, in everyday life, is to enact it for yourself. So, um, so this thing about I thought it was all a mind game, I, as I said to you before about control of my anxiety and stress, but actually, you know, I need to take action. So this three-part aspect of wisdom where you take action and do it for yourself and physically enact it on yourself is just terrifically important. Um, and then going around, you know, then if you discover that some course of action does work, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do less of it. Um, I think the other thing is that's very, very important is, is, and we've alluded to it before, is that too many people um, become dare I say it, subservient to fantastic doctors, uh, I think that we need to assemble um, a very broad healthcare team. Uh, you know, I have 12 people that I would call my health team. Um, I have two cancer buddies who are people who know me inside out because I've lived a lot of parts of my formative lives with them and they keep me in check and um, challenge me, challenge my thinking. Um, do research for me, do all sorts of things. But my psychotherapist and my nutritionist and my amazing wife and, you know, they're all part of my, my important team and they just keep me open-minded and humble. I think that's really, really important. I, we talked about, um, me measuring various things. I think, um, some things you can measure and some things you can't, but I think measuring progress I think is really, really important where you can measure progress. I think that's very important. Um, and perhaps the other thing as well, uh, perhaps the, the last thing worth mentioning in answer to this specific question is, is to say that it is really, it's a journey in life. It's a, it's a life's work really being, being healthy. Mm, okay. And I hope you don't mind me asking about this, but, what you've been through is something that people it's it's something that a lot of people haven't been through essentially having in one day have to face the prospect of mortality when you get that call and you speak to the gp and just being being dropped that bomb um and inevitably thinking about the future and and what the future holds i think at the moment modern life um, perhaps not so much in the healthcare system because of the nature of the work but we don't really have to consider our mortality at all i suppose unless something does happen like the loss of a loved one or a diagnosis for example but until that point i think especially me we go through life not necessarily considering um, our own death and the end point and th those sorts of things. Having had this diagnosis, and I, I imagine that you have had these sorts of these thoughts when you've been given the, this prognosis, the prognosis that you were given, and the Gleason score and everything that that entails. Ha has how has your kind of concept of, I suppose, if it's okay to be blunt, but the concept of death and mortality, how is that sort of 
um, changed, if at all, within your own um, psyche and how you view it and things? Well, it's changed enormously. Um, I mean, I never gave it a moment's thought. But actually, to think that it's not just Nick Parker who's got a incurable disease who's going to die. I mean, we're all, unfortunately, yeah. we're all mortal. And we're all on a path towards the inevitable. I've just had the privilege of being told um, I'm on notice. And um, if you can think about it positively, like, Nick, you're on notice. Well, that's a, that's a gift, you know, because we could all get knocked over by a car tomorrow. And so, but this, this, which is why I, I, I mentioned my sort of spiritual growth within this, because that's been very, very important for me to be able to uh, reconcile impermanence and death in my, within my own mind and then to talk about it with others. It's a really, really important thing. And you're quite right is we just don't talk about it, but it's a really important thing to talk about. And, um, I think if you understand death, then you live life. I mean, it just, it's the, it's, it just, it, it, it brings, for me, it brings more color and joy to my, to every day because we, we just don't know what tomorrow brings. And the only thing that we've got to really truly enjoy is the moment. And so I now see, I'm sure, 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 when, you know, when the end comes and particular, uh, I don't know, something more nasty in terms of my condition happens between near here and now, um, sorry, here and then, um, I, I'm sure, you know, I'll be severely challenged in my perception of death, but, you know, I'm in a much better place. And Atul Gwandi's book, um, Becoming Mortal, um, Being Mortal, sorry, Being Mortal, um, and, um, is just the most fantastic book. It was an early book that I read and that was written by, have you read it? I need to, I've written it. Uh, I've read his other books, but that's the one that, um, yeah, yeah. yet to get onto. So, and actually, I think, is, is, is super. I think one of the reasons I've put it off is because I find it really challenging to just mm. read about mortality and I've picked it up and I thought, I don't have the stomach for this right now. After having read a couple of other, um, there's another one, um, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, I think. I found that really difficult. But what you're saying is so true, is everybody has to face this reality. But um, my reluctance to do so is sort of reflected in the fact that I, I haven't picked that book up. But yeah, it's something I need it's to... A it's a really tough one. It's a very tough discussion. But, you know, I think you can have, you know, one, and it teaches you to confront fears and to drive through fear. And then, so, you know, I, I launched a very unfortunate conversation with my wife the other day. And um, she she's fantastic. And she has been the person who got me to get my head removed from the sand and go and originally go and speak to the doctors about these things that were going on inside my body. Um, and she gets me now to speak that's on my mind. Unfortunately, I think sometimes it probably works against her. And that I said to her when she had short of time and was about to rush out the door, I said, look, can I speak to you about something because it's on my mind? She said, yeah. 
I said, look, I'm really, really challenged about, um, about my last or our last celebration of my time with us, um, you know, uh, otherwise called a funeral or something like that. And, uh, she said, Oh my God, why are you talking about that now? I said, well, cause it's on my mind. And so we started talking about it there and then, and it was a very curtailed conversation because she was rushing off somewhere. But we, we talked about how, you know, if you're a Christian, then accepted practice would be perhaps to go to a church, an Anglo-Saxon, uh, a Church of England church, or you'd go to uh, a uh, crematorium or something. And I was just looking at all the things that didn't quite resonate with me in doing that. And she got deeply upset about it, and uh, which was understandable. And we then spent the whole weekend realizing that she could actually predecease me, and I didn't know what she wanted by way of her funeral. So we had a really, really wonderful weekend of just discussing, researching, and debating uh, what would be a really nice way of leaving this world. And um, and actually, it was a really, it was a really, really joyous thing to to do. Actually, you know, to go through song lists and reading lists, and um, what building would it be if it was in a building? Um, and who would be there? And, and, you know, it was actually, it was a deeply, deeply pleasurable experience having got through that first sort of fearful thing about, well, it's death. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a, thank you for raising it because I find it also fascinating. Yeah. I think that is such a good example to hear about where you can have that discussion because you see the other side of it in the hospital where there's an unexpected illness and within, less than 24 hours somebody might be faced with one of us um on the ward asking them what are your thoughts on resuscitation because we have to seriously consider this and in in the worst case scenario somebody um is unconscious and the family don't know and there hasn't been any opportunity or thought i mean obviously it's not really something that people think about talking about with their family but when it happens and there hasn't been any thought about it and the family wouldn't know what they want because nobody's discussed it is really difficult so yeah i think um the fact that you've been able to have that discussion with your wife is um i think it's quite rare but i think it's amazing that you have had that and opened that door and i suppose that there is that initial reluctance because it's such a jarring topic to talk about um yeah really really difficult but well have you got any sort of final thoughts or anything that you'd like to share um or just any message that you may have for anybody um i think what you've spoken about with with regards to death and the, the thoughts around that are particularly relevant but i don't know if you had anything else that you may want to share i suppose um really just my sort of uh um my lasting thought really is, uh, and I have said this before, but I do really believe it, which is probably why I've said it before and I'm repeating it now, is that I started this journey thinking it was a, a journey in health or recovering health. It's not, it's not a journey in health. You know, it's a journey in the art and science of life. Yeah, that's what it is, really. And um, health 
would be the privilege. You know, good health would be the privilege. But you know, you can be, you can be happy and fulfilled and not well. And um, you know, on some measures, I'm not well, but I am very happy and I feel very fulfilled. So it's about the art and science of living, really. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nick. Where where can people find you if they want to see your work and, and where you may be speaking and keep up to date with what you're doing? Well, thank you for asking, Julian. Uh, www.thecancerjourneyman.co.uk And if you just put the Cancer Journeyman into the website, it's, sorry, into the internet, it seems to pop up with me somewhere, somewhere, some places. Uh, equally, it's sometimes a holiday on social media because I think part of this modern life of being accountable to social media and things being pinging at you the whole time isn't necessarily very good for us but um, you can usually find me on somewhere somehow on those two formats really that's great Facebook or the website great thank you so much Nick for your time I really pre- I really appreciate you um, contacting me thanks Julian and good luck to all your listeners Once again, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Stronger Medicine podcast. As Nick said, you can find him by searching for The Cancer Journeyman, either through Facebook or via something like Google uh, to get his website. Now, if you got any value from this episode or any of the others, I'd really appreciate it if you'd be able to leave a review, a rating, uh, follow this uh, podcast on whatever platform you're listening to or to share it with anyone else you may think would benefit but until the next episode um, i wish you all the best and speak soon <laughs>